Uh, well, welcome today. So glad to have you here. Uh, in the movie Amadeus, it, it came out a while ago, but in the movie Amadeus is set in the 1700s and it tells the story of the relationship between a court composer, a guy named Antonio Salieri, and his, his arch rival, a guy named Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And uh, as a young man, Salieri prayed to God. He said, God, if you just give me the talent and the skill to be a great composer, I will devote my entire life to honor and to serve you. And then Mozart blows onto the scene and is incredibly talented and gifted, so much so that he utterly overshadows anything that Salieri ever does. And it destroys Salieri's dream of greatness and and he's enraged and, and he asked God how he could lavish such amazing musical talent and genius on a man who is both arrogant and a total buffoon. And he burns with envy at Mozart and what he can do. In fact, the opening scene of the movie, uh, it turns out that, that Salieri has attempted to commit suicide uh, because in part of his role in, in hastening the death of Mozart. And so uh, they send a priest to hear his confession. And, and while he's waiting for the priest, he's sitting in a wheelchair and he's sort of playing at the piano. And, and when, when the priest comes in the room, he realizes, Salieri realizes it's his chance to, to find out just how successful he's been. And so he asks the priest, he says, do you have any musical training? And the priest says, well, a little bit. And so Salieri begins to play one of his pieces. And he says, do you know this one? He's like, no. And he pray, plays another one, no. And a third one, no. And he says, ah, ah, this one. This one was really popular in his time. And he plays it. And the priest is a little embarrassed because he doesn't recognize it either. And, and suddenly Salieri gets a gleam in his eye. He says, wait, wait, let me play one more for you. And he begins to play this tune that is so melodic and, and so catchy and fills the room. And the priest lights up right away. And, and he, he begins to hum along. In fact, even when Salieri is done playing, the priest still is humming the tune. And he looks up at Salieri, the priest does, and he smiles and says, oh, I didn't know that you wrote. That is so good. And Salieri said, I didn't. Mozart wrote that. And, and the scene is fascinating because in his experience with the priest, Salieri, Salieri confirms what he has tried to deny all his life, but it's so evident to him. And that's just that Mozart's God-given talents will always be way greater than his. Anything that Salieri does will always be second class and second rate compared to what Mozart does. And as you watch the movie, you just see the envy in Salieri's life literally destroys his joy and causes all kinds of pain in his life. You know, envy is a powerful force in people's lives. In fact, it's the topic that we're going to look at today because, because as Solomon has been looking at the world, as he's been examining what life is all about, here's the next thing that he sees. In Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4, he says this, And I saw that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Solomon says, look, when I look around at, at life, one of the driving forces in people's lives is the envy that they have for one another. But he says, in the end, that kind of envy is, is an utter waste. It's a total loss. He says, in the end, it's, it's meaningless. 
If you're driven by envy, in the end, it's, it's smoke and vapor. It's like you grab for it, but when you open your hand, there's nothing there. In fact, envy is so destructive in a per- person's life that the, the early church classified it as one of the seven deadly sins. In fact, it's considered the most widespread of the seven deadly sins. And so this morning, because Solomon is talking about it, we want to talk about it. We're going to define what envy is. We're going to consider how it impacts our life. And then we're going to talk about how we can get free from this sin that is so deadly in our lives. So first of all, what is envy? How do we define what envy is? Well, envy is wanting something desirable that belongs to someone else. But, but it's different than greed or coveting. Because see, envy doesn't just say, I want what someone else has or I want more than someone else has. It says, I want what that person has. Exactly what they have. Because you see, envy is not so much about having more and more stuff. Envy is about having more and more value and status. Envy is about identity. And the way that an envious person tries to build their status and their value, the way that they try to build their envy, or their, their identity rather, is by getting more of whatever it is than the person that they're comparing themselves to has. So for example, you know, if you wanted to buy a beautiful F-type Jaguar convertible because, because you love cars, because it's so beautiful, because, because the lines on that and the performance are, are, are so amazing, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great thing if you could do that. But, but if the reason why you want to buy a Jaguar F-type convertible is because your brother-in-law has an Audi and this will make you have something better than, that, than your brother-in-law, that's envy. Because, you see, envy, envy is, you know, I mean, getting the right car or, or the right clothes or the right house or the right job is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It signals something important about your personal value. Not having a car, if you can have that kind of car, it doesn't mean simply that you don't have the car. If you have envy in your life, it means that somehow you are a lesser person with less value and less worthy, therefore, of love and acceptance. That's what envy does in your life. Envy is not about stuff. Envy is about status and identity. So that means that the people who struggle with envy don't just envy other people's stuff. They envy their skills, their, their talents, their personality, their physical appearance, their strength. Anything really that in their mind God has given to someone else that, that they think that he should have given to them so that they feel more valuable and more important than that person. And because of envy, if we can't have what they have, if we can't be more like them than they are like them, then the other thing about envy is that we're just as happy if they lose what they already have. Anything that will improve our status compared to them is good because it makes us feel more valuable and more important. So here's a simple definition of envy. Envy is resenting God's goodness towards someone else and ignoring God's goodness towards you. And it is incredibly destructive in a person's life. It's also very widespread. I, I, 
I first realized how much envy was a part of my life when I began a, a, a number of years ago to read more about envy. And, and, you know, until that point in my life, I thought that I suffered a great deal from insecurities. I had all these insecurities and I thought, well, it's just part of my personality. It's just, it's just this problem that I'm going to have all my life. But when I began to read and understand what envy was about, I said, oh, that's me. Oh, I'm, a, oh, I do. Oh my. And I, and I realized, I came to this realization that I didn't have a personality problem. I had a sin problem. My problem wasn't the insecurity. My problem was envy. What I found through that realization was is incredibly freeing because I find it difficult to change my personality. But I know that I can deal with my sin because of what Jesus is doing in my life. It's not always easy, but I know that I can, can change and you could change because of what Jesus has done in your life. So I want to walk with you through the symptoms of envy, kind of like a doctor would walk through you, with you through the symptoms of a disease so that you can kind of self-diagnose and say, oh, I didn't see that. I thought that was something else going on in my life. So here are the symptoms of envy. This is how we know, this is how you know, sorry, if there is envy in your life. First of all, envy comes through comparison. Because envy is always about status and value and identity. A person who is envious measures their self-worth not based on what God has given them, but based on comparing themselves with the people around them. The result is that if you're envious, you will constantly be comparing yourself and, and measuring yourself up against others. And in the process, you'll become more and more discontent with how God made you and what he's given you. And that comparison will end up making you feel less valuable and, and less important because God has given someone else something more important than you. So here's the first question. Do you find yourself comparing yourself with others and wishing that you had what they have? If so, you're on your way towards envy. Here's the second thing. That, that comparison develops into a rivalry. Now, often that person doesn't know that you are in a rivalry with them. But in your mind, you are. You find yourself in this secret competition with them. And that person almost always is sort of in your circle. There's someone nearby to you or someone running in your lane. See, when, when I struggled with envy, I didn't envy Brad Pitt, right? I mean, granted, we have probably the similar stunning good looks. But, but, but besides that... He's a Hollywood movie star, and I had no interest in that whatsoever. So I never envied a guy like him. Envy, the people that we envy, are those that we think we could be like or that are running in the same lane that we are. I mean, the person who wants to be a acclaimed writer, a famous author, they have no problem if their neighbor or their friend wins an Olympic gold medal in the 5,000-meter race because they have troubles doing the sun run. It's no big deal. But if one of their colleagues, who is also a writer, publishes a novel and it gets rave reviews and their own published work gets only a half-hearted notice, it can cause them to burn with envy. If you measure your value by your career or by how much income you have, chances are you're not envying Elon Musk or Warren Buffett. They're in a different galaxy altogether. But the guy across the office from you who earned $10,000 more in bonuses this year than you did, 
That'll burn you up. If there's envy in your life, it's with someone or several people who you could imagine being. If only it weren't for the cruel twist of fate that allowed them to get what you wish you would have gotten. And those people, they aren't in Hollywood. They're people somewhere in your circles. You are so close to them and yet at the same time so far because you can't make yourself be like them. And so there's this weird space between you and that space gets filled with envy. So here's a question. Is there a secret rivalry going on in your mind? I mean, with someone that has the perfect family that you don't have. Someone that, someone that has, you know, a job like yours, but everything just comes so much easier to them and you seem to have to work so hard at it. Maybe between you and someone who has the skills and talents that you've got, but they just have them in spades and you just wish that you had that. If so, you should be aware of that that's envy that is growing in your life. Here's the next symptom of envy. Envy expresses itself through passive aggressive behavior. See, if you envy somebody, in, if you envy somebody, you can never simply confess that. Because if you tell them that you envy them, it would be showing you primarily that, 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 that you are less than them. That, 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 I mean, it would be a humiliating thing to do. So people who struggle with envy, they, they don't confess that. Instead, the envy comes out in subtle, passive-aggressive ways. If you envy someone, you will end up gossiping about them. Just, just passing on something about that person that's maybe not so flattering. If you envy someone, you will keep a keen eye out for their flaws. You'll be incredibly critical of them, unlike you would be of many other people. If you envy someone, you will find yourself damning them with faint praise, like, oh, they're all right. If you envy someone, you might find yourself trying to quietly turn people against them. Just plant a little poison here and there against them. You will assume that their motives for whatever they do are always bad or mostly bad. You will secretly wish that bad things happen to them. And when those bad things do happen, you will secretly rejoice. It's so nefarious. It's so evil. But if you have envy in your life, you'll do anything that you can to close the gap between you and them. Do you find yourself doing these things? Find yourself rejoicing when something not so good happens in their life. Oh man, that's, that's envy. And here's the last symptom of envy. Envy turns into a kind of fatalism. If it goes on long enough in your life, you become deeply discouraged and discontent with who you are and all that God has given you. And you begin to blame God or fate or the world or some other external force for the bad hand that you've been dealt. Here's the question. Do you ever find yourself complaining to God about how he made you? Do you, ever, do you ever find yourself blaming God because he didn't give you the kind of giftings and skills that he gave someone else because he didn't open for you the doors and the, and the opportunities that he gave someone else? That he didn't give you the kind of 
personality or, or talents that someone else has? If so, it's a sign that, that envy has taken a deep root in your life. Those are the symptoms of envy. And, and, and envy, if, if you have that in your life, you've got to deal with it. I mean, it's like a cancer otherwise that will eat away at you until it destroys your world. In fact, here's what happens if you don't deal with the envy in your life. First of all, you will always, always feel insecure. It doesn't matter how successful you become, you will always live with a deep sense of insecurity. In an interview with a Vogue magazine, Madonna, one of the most famous pop stars over the last uh, 40 years said this. Listen to her language. It's all about this. She said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. She's comparing herself always to others. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and, it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. You hear that? Because she fears that she will be mediocre. Because her self-worth is based upon a comparison with others. There is this lifelong insecurity that one of the most successful entertainers in the world struggles with. And you might think, you know, you might think that she's neurotic. She has to prove to herself over and over that she's special. But it turns out that she's actually fairly self-aware, more than many people are. Because you see, if envy comes into your life, you will feel insecurity whether you are the most famous entertainer, one of the most famous entertainers in the world, or you are virtually unknown. It's one of the consequences of envy in your life. Here's the second consequence of envy in your life. It leads you, leaves you unable to enjoy the good things that God has given you. You know, the movie Chariot of, uh, Chariots of Fire is about a couple of guys that are competing in the Olympics in the 1920s. One of them is a guy named Harold Abrahams, and the other is a guy named Eric Little. And Harold Abrahams is driven. He is driven to win in this race that they're, that they're running, in the 100-yard dash. And, and when he fails to win the first race that he's in, he's devastated. Because winning for him is about his identity. It's about his meaning. And, and, and so there's this scene where he's sitting on the bleachers with his hand in his face, uh, telling the woman that he loves. He says, uh, he says, if I can't win, I won't run. And she's a little exasperated. She says, well, if you won't run, you can't win. But you see, for Harold Abrahams, he can't see himself as someone who runs and sometimes wins. He must be a winner. Otherwise, he doesn't have value in his mind. Eric Little, on the other hand, he explains to his sister that his desire to run comes not from a desire to have to prove to himself or to anyone else that he's special, because he knows that he's loved by God. Instead, he, he says this famous line, probably the most famous line from the movie. He says this, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When I do what he has given me the ability to do, I feel God's pleasure. It brings me joy. If I win, that's a bonus. I'm so excited about that. I'd love to win. But it doesn't define my identity, whether I win or not. 
I simply get to enjoy the gifts that God has given me. If you live with envy of what God has given someone else, it will suck the joy out of what he has given you. The very thing that should bring you joy will become a source of anguish and pain and frustration in your life. See, it's the curse of envy. It's the second consequence. Here's the third consequence. Envy leaves you with the inability to love others. Because you know this, if you love someone, you're always excited if something good happens in their life. Envy, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. If you have envy, you rejoice at the bad things that happen in the life of the person that you envy. You can't envy someone and love them at the same time. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he made this, when he described what true love, genuine love is all about, he has this line. He says this, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy. In fact, the church fathers pointed out that, that of, the de- of the seven deadly sins, envy was the sin that was most likely to keep you from, from obeying the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love and envy are incompatible. It'll suck the love out of your life. And finally, envy makes even your successes fragile and temporary. You see, if envy is a problem in your life, even if you become successful at whatever it is that you so desperately want to be successful because then you think you'll be someone, even if you get there, you'll always be looking over your shoulder to see who's coming to knock you off your pedestal. Who's coming up that is better and, and, and will go further. And there will always be someone. And so instead of enjoying that time, you will simply be worried the whole time that you're experiencing that success. Because what you're really looking for is not so much success. Deep down, what you're really looking for is a secure, unconditional sense of worth that you can never comfortably build very comfortably on the successes in your life because they are so often so temporary. Which means that if you're trying to do that, even the successes in your life will lack a lot of joy. See, here's the thing about about envy. Envy is a loser's game. Even if you win, you lose. When I first started doing reading about this, there was this quote that just really stuck out to me. Uh, Joseph Epstein says this, of all the deadly sins... Only envy is no fun at all. All the other deadly sins, at least there's some fun involved before the consequences hit. But in envy, there's nothing fun about it anywhere along the way. It's a loser's game. Solomon put it this way. I saw all the toil and achievement spring, that all toil and achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And then he goes on to say this. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Solomon says, look, I've seen. Some people have decided they're not playing the comparison game. They simply fold their hands and check out. He says, that's, that's a disastrous choice too. That's, that's a foolish thing to do. But he also goes on to say this in verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable, miserable business. Solomon says, 
I've seen the other extreme, and it's just as foolish. It's the man or the woman who, who works so hard, pours their entire life into building their status and their value and their identity so that they can finally prove to themselves mostly, but to everyone else that they are someone. And along the way, in that great quest in their life, they lose the most important things in their life. They lose their family and friends. Of course, that person might say, well, no, I got family and friends around me. And in fact, they will argue that what they're working so hard at is to provide for them. But their heart is really a, a, a wedded to this, this identity building project that they are doing. And, and it's where all of their passion and all of their energy goes. And so even though they have family and friends, they are alone and there's a loneliness in their life. And when they finally dawns on them what has happened, they look at everything they built and said, so what? Who cares? Because I've lost these people that are so key in my life. See, you can't beat envy by outworking it. It's a loser's game. So what do you do? Well, right in the middle of this section, in verse 6, Solomon explains the solution. He says this, Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. The solution, he says, is contentment. Better to be pleased with what you have than to always be looking to see if you could have what others have. But how do we get that? I mean, in a world where we feel like we're comparing all the time, I mean, how do we find the kind of contentment that just gives us that, that peace with who we are? Well, there are a number of simple things that you can do. One is to practice gratitude. I mean, if you struggle with this this afternoon, you should go home, get a cup of coffee, you should sit down and list all of the good things God has put in your life. And you'll be amazed. You'll be like, oh, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. Once you run that list and you take 10 or 15 minutes and you just thank God. You thank God. Thank you for this. It'll change your perspective. Second thing to do is to accept your limitations. Do you realize that every great uh, piece of art was made within certain limitations? I mean, every, every picture has a canvas that limits how, how big it can be. Every song has certain parameters that it has to function within. Every poem has a certain pattern that it has to follow. It, it, it is the limits that force the creativity that results in the beauty. You should thank God for the limitations in your life. You should accept them and say, God, thank you for this canvas, however big it is. Help me to build a beautiful picture on it rather than trying to paint on my neighbor's canvas. The second thing. The third is this. You should pray for that person that you envy. You know, when you sit down and list all the good things in your life, then you should think of that person that you secretly have a rivalry with and you should pray God's blessing in their life. You should pray God's goodness into their life. You should pray that we get more of whatever they've got that's good in their life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer did this. He's a famous uh, German theologian. He said it made a world of difference for him. That person went from a rival to being a brother or a sister. Love came into his life for them. There's a couple of things that simply you can do. But, but there's, there's a deeper work that you need to do if you really want to root out the envy in your life. Because ultimately it's about identity, isn't it? 
Ultimately, it's about a sense of value in your life. And you have to find a way to build your identity on something other than comparing yourself to the people around you. So what is that? Well, the Apostle Paul explains how to do that in an interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you read it, it turns out that in the church in Corinth, they had all these amazing leaders there. Uh, They had the Apostle Paul, of course. They had a brilliant teacher, a man named Apollos. They had Cephas, who is just another name for the Apostle Peter, who spent all that time with Jesus. And the people in that church started saying, well, I'm actually a a Paul guy, or I'm, a, I'm an Apollos guy, or I'm a, I'm a Cephas guy. Like, and they began these divisions, and, and Paul's like, no, 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 no. See, because it would be easy for those three men to begin to, to build their identity on that. I'm the most important apostle. I, I, I'm, I'm the best teacher. I'm the one who spent the most time with Jesus. Paul says, I will have none of that. And here's what he writes to them. He says this. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed to us. Now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Paul says, look, all three of us guys, we've all been given the gifts to help people understand about Jesus. He says, my value, Paul says, my value? He says, I don't let, I don't care. I don't let anyone judge me. I don't care. He says to the people in Corinth, I don't care what you think about me at all because my value isn't based on what you think. In fact, That's very admirable. In fact, if you went to a counselor today and said, I'm struggling with a sense of of self-identity, one of the first things they say, well, stop comparing yourself to others. In fact, they would say, you just need to set the standard for yourself. You just need to be true to you. What you want, who you want to be. But Paul says, ah, wait, wait, wait. He says, that's a trap too. He, he, He says this, he says, actually, I don't even judge myself. I don't look to myself to set those standards. Here's why, because it's a trap. It's a trap that Solomon saw. If you set your standards too low, like the first fool, you just fold your hands and say, I can't do anything. He says, you'll miss out on living the life that God has for you to the full potential. But he says, but if you set your standards too high, like the other fool that Solomon described who worked so hard to try to become someone that they, God never designed them to be. If you do that, you'll end up alone and lonely. He says, that idea sounds so good. It's so popular in our world today. He says, that's a trap too. Instead, he says this. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. He says, the person who gives me meaning The one who I build my identity on is the Lord. It's Jesus. He's the one who judges my life. He's the one who decides my value. It's only his opinion that matters to me. And here's the thing about Jesus. It's only Jesus who gives you the verdict before your performance. He already tells you before you've done anything what his verdict is of you. Romans 8.1 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
In other words, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed. In other words, sort of placed upon you so that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Which means that when God looks at you, he can say to you the same thing that he said to Jesus at his baptism. He says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well placed. See, that's the verdict about you. This is my son or daughter whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. With you, I, I, I love you just so deeply. And if you can grasp that, if you can allow that to sink deep, deep into your heart, I mean, then you can live out of that kind of knowledge. He's pleased with you. So you don't have to prove yourself to others. You have to prove yourself to yourself. Instead, you can live out of that knowledge. He created you and he gave you gifts and talents and has opened opportunities for you that he has not given to others. And he's given them gifts and talents and opportunities that he has not given to you. But your value is unshakable because he's pleased with you. Because he loves you. Therefore, you don't need to find your identity in comparing yourself with others. The knowledge that he loves you, that becomes unmoving. That becomes the kind of foundation that you can build an identity upon. It doesn't change depending upon whether that person gets a promotion or, or, or she has a more beautiful home or, or they get to do things that you don't get to do. You know, out of the knowledge that God loves you and that he is so pleased with you, you can build a deep, full, rich, meaningful life. Out of that kind of knowledge, you can leave the insecurities behind. The kind of insecurities that dog even the most famous and successful people in the world. You can just rest in who God made you to be. Out of that kind of knowledge, you can savor the successes of your life without fearing the failures. You could take joy in the very things that God gave you to find joy in. Out of that kind of knowledge, you can love and work and rest and fill your life with families, uh, with family and friends, knowing that your value is never dependent upon how much you accomplish or how successful you are, but it's, instead it rests simply on the fact that God loves you. See, there's a freedom there that is available to you that you will never, ever know otherwise if you don't understand and accept the kind of love that God has in your life. It's the key to dealing with the envy in your life. Envy will destroy you. It will suck the joy out of you. There's nothing fun in any way about envy. It's an utter loser's game. Even if you win, you lose. When you know and understand the love of God in your life, ah, there is a freedom and a joy there that allows you to live life to the full. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Well, our God and Heavenly Father, we come to you this day. And God, you know, you know the challenges in our world. God, you know how easy it is to fall into the trap of envy. On the social media feed that comes up, we just always see people's best life. 
Father, we look around, we see others who seem to have better gifts and talents and skills and opportunities. And Father God, if we're not careful, you know we fall into this trap. God, forgive us for that. Forgive us because it, it, it pulls us from, apart from them. It pulls us apart from you. God, it, it brings destruction into our own life. Oh God, would you help us to understand just deep in our gut, at the deepest level, how much you love us. How deeply you care for us. How good you have been to us. Not because we did anything to deserve it, but simply because of your great love for us. God, would you help us to build on our, our identity on that, to live out of that knowledge, to love deeply the people around us, those who, those who seem like they're ahead of us even. Father, would you free us from the, the sin, from the, the disease of envy and give us the freedom of life that comes from knowing you. We look to you. We trust you for this. We want to be obedient to what you call us to. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today. I hope today that you've both been convicted, but also deeply encouraged. God has a, a way for us that brings freedom and life to us. May we walk in that. Let me send you out today with the words of the, the ancient prophet Zephaniah. Uh, in Zephaniah 3.17, he says this, The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will not rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. As you go, may you, may you go knowing that God rejoices over you with singing. He's so pleased. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.